Thanks, Carl Carty and your great team and Lloyd for leading us in baptisms and Aaron and Kyle and Bobby for their profession of faith. What a good morning it's already been. We could probably just go home. Some of you would probably like that. For 12 years, uh, Dick Giggy started a ministry called Thrift Smart. Dick is a longtime member of Fellowship, and uh, as you came in in the arcade today, you've seen some plastic bags and the information about Thrift Smart. Um, Thrift Smart ministers to a lot of people. Uh, they've given over $700,000 away in their existence, and primarily they focus on Hope Academy, Mercy uh, Community Health, Health Center, African Leadership, and the Belize Project. 100% of the profits go back to these ministries. So what we want you to do is take these bags home and fill them up, and next weekend when you would come to church, you just put it behind your car at the service, and volunteers will come around, and they'll collect those bags. Last year, uh, Fellowship gave more in total gross volume than any church has ever given before. So it's, it's incumbent on uh, uh, you just to say, incumbent to me to say thank you for your generosity to Thrift Smart and the great ministry that they, that they do. So you can take that home. You can read more about it. But next Saturday or Sunday, if you bring these bags back full, and um, it's a great time to clean out all the stuff in your closets that you never use. And uh, those of you who have kids especially, younger children, uh, you know, they go through stuff so quickly to redeploy that to other kids who don't have that opportunity. So we hope you'll take that home and uh, take a look at it. Well, we finished Easter in a sense. You don't finish it, you begin. But we've last weekend had across all our campuses uh, almost 5,000 people in attendance at all the services and uh, a great weekend of worship. And now, we, in a sense, we have to go back in time a little bit as we pick up the narrative in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bible in Mark, I want to ask you to open to chapter 10. Earlier in Mark's record, you may recall the words of Jesus to his disciples that he'd be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, that they would condemn him to death, that they would hand him over, he'd be mocked and scourged and killed and buried and rise again. Those sober, shocking words did not quite sink into all the disciples at the same way, and nor would they to us had we lived in that time period. Right on the heels of that conversation, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and essentially say, we want you to give us power and position and rank. We want you to do for us something that uh, is special to us. Well, Jesus is going to level that question and say, you don't know what you're asking. And then, interestingly, the other ten disciples become indignant. It's a fascinating word. They're ticked. They're upset that these other disciples, that John and James would come and ask for this rank and position and privilege in life. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. And all of a sudden they go, hey, uh, by the way, can you give me a promotion? Can you give me a raise? Can you put me at the top of the list? Not long after that, um, Jesus is going to explain to them what we would look at as the centerpiece of the gospel, and that's in chapter 10. Just listen. Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And men of great, great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be last of all. Um, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Jesus calls out selfish ambition. You want to be first? Get at the back of the line. You want to be successful? Die to self. You want to make a name for yourself? No place in the kingdom of God. And the God-man turns leadership on its head. And we all live in a context where leadership, even the best servant leadership, can sometimes smack of it being about the leader, the individual. And Christ, of course, challenges us all in this regard. He came to serve. He came to die for you and me. Lost in those phrases for most readers is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that he came as the God of the universe to die in your place, on your behalf instead of you, in my place, on my behalf instead of me. That's leadership. That's servant leadership. That I'll die for those whom I love. I'll be the last in order to help them. And this contrast couldn't be more striking with the way the disciples are viewing this whole arrangement. Now, I want you to think about a couple things as we go through this message. And the first one is, what do you ask of Jesus? What do you ask him to do for you in your prayer life, in your longings, in your aches, in your wish list? What do you ask Jesus to do for you? And we're going to look at this passage and see questions, not only from James and John, sons of Zebedee, uh, we want you to do something for us. We're going to see an interaction he's going to have with a man named Blind Bartimaeus as we go through this text. Well, let's take a look at this last journey. This is the last time Jesus will now go to his death in Jerusalem. And it begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Would you read uh, from the screen with me? Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, briefly, Mark's going to note a trip, the disciples, and a blind beggar. Uh, one of the things I stress as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we've all stressed, is the brevity without sacrificing important details. Mark is crisp and clear in his writing, and he, but he doesn't miss a thing. He wants us to notice the trip, the disciples, and the blind beggar. It's about 15 miles from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee uh, down to Jericho and to Jerusalem, and you would go through Jericho because that was a water source on the way. It was popular for rabbis to travel with an entourage. In those days, uh, rabbis uh, had followings. And we think of family systems that went up to Passover, and they did, clans and tribes and in-laws and distant relatives, and they would all assemble together. This was not a hardship. This was Thanksgiving and Christmas combined for them. They're excited to go up to Passover and worship and offer sacrifices. And they would come up to the complex, and the men would go through the mikvahs. They'd go in the southern steps. The women would be in the court of women. The men would go in, and they'd put their hand on that sacrifice. And you'd see smoke for miles coming up from the temple complex in those days. It was a celebration. It was a great thing. They wanted to do it. And an entourage always went with them. And you went with your rabbi, typically. What most missed when we read that one simple verse is he's with his disciples, and look at it, and a large crowd. Mark's not saying there were a large crowd in Jericho. He's saying Jesus went with his disciples and a large crowd. I do not think it's a stretch to think Christ had more than 100-some people with him as he's going up. This is a big deal. They love this Jesus. They love what he's teaching. He's their rabbi. And so this entourage is moving with them. Uh, this City of Roses, as Jericho is known, is the oldest city on the planet that's been discovered, technically speaking, and especially in Israel. It was burgeoning with pilgrims. 
Vincent Taylor writes, the passage through the city bears the character of an ovation. So we're meant to see this as an ovation of him coming up to Passover. But don't forget what he's just told his disciples. I'm going to be handed over, arrested, flogged, mocked, scourged, killed, buried, and come back from the dead. And in that conversation, well, wait a minute, can I, can I be at the head of the line? Can I be the next big important person? Indignant among the disciples. And then he tells them, you want to be a leader? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be last. And then he illustrates that he came to die for them. And this then is the storyline that Mark gives us. Now Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, which is simply defining the word Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, is sitting by the road. Now we've talked about synoptics, and most of you know this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they're, let's say, similar. John is a bit different of a gospel. It reads differently. It covers things in a different way. The language, the whole approach to John's gospel is unique. So we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptics. All three of them record this miracle. Three of them have some different details and different data on the miracle. And if you've been in Bible study fellowship or precept, or you're just a careful Bible student, you may have encountered these differences. For example, only Mark mentions the name, Bartimaeus. Matthew mentions that there were two men. Luke says that they were, uh, that record the interactions with the main character and that they were approaching Jericho. Mark says they're leaving Jericho. Now, it would come as no surprise that people that don't believe the Bible read this and go, see, the Bible disagrees with itself. The Bible's wrong. They can't get the story straight. Well, we use a thing called harmonization. What's to prevent Luke from saying there were two, but Mark records interaction with one? Nothing. What prevents one gospel writer to say Jesus touched him and the other one to leave that out? Nothing. What's more important are what are the exact same phrases, and we're going to look at those, that are found in the synoptics. And that stands a lot taller and more important than some of the details. Now, just as an illustration of how sometimes we make these, big, these small issues into big issues, if Luke says that he was approaching Jericho and Mark says leaving Jericho, then one must be wrong. Well, if you visit Israel, uh, which is God's will for your life, uh, you will discover the, how this works. Because old Jericho is a city that lay in ruins. It's a tell. It's a hole. In fact, when you go to Jerusalem, very hard to get in Jericho these days. When you go into Jericho, you go down to one of the lowest spots they've, they've uncovered in the entire land of Israel. And when, when you go there and you see the history of it, they didn't rebuild over the ancient Jericho. They built next to it. It's still called Jericho. It's a mile apart. Some call it Old Jericho and New Jericho. It's like, do you know where downtown Brentwood is technically? You would be underwhelmed <laughs> if you went to downtown Brentwood. But Brentwood has expanded. And there's other areas. Where that's more of the downtown than downtown Brentwood. Nothing any different than that. So they're leaving the old city, coming into the new city, or leaving the new city, coming into the old. It doesn't matter. That's all for free. The large crowd is going up for Passover, and there's an entourage following him, and we're going to have the last plea. It's the last trip into Israel, into Jerusalem, and it's the last plea where a person is going to ask Jesus something specifically. Look at Mark chapter 10. Read with me again verses 47 and 48. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. While blind Bartimaeus begs, the competition tries to drown him out. Nazarene is a degrading title, but this phrase, son of David, is very important. Now, he's blind. He's a beggar. Whether he was congenitally blind or blind from a disease, the text is quiet. We don't know. What we know is he's blind, but he hears the commotion. This is a busy traffic pattern that you went to if you went into Jerusalem at this time of year. So there were hundreds of people, thousands of people, technically, going through the city. So Bartimaeus is a beggar. He's probably got his location where he begs every day, and he hears all this swirl. This is Jesus the Nazareth. This is Jesus the Nazarene, a derogatory term, but he calls him son of David many times. We have it recorded twice in Mark, but the verb kept crying out is repetitive. It's an ongoing active participle. He keeps saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. We need to talk about son of David for just a moment. He is the only man in Mark who uses the title. Jesus will self-reference in a question about the Son of Man, but this is the only occurrence where an individual uses the title to talk about Jesus. Turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I won't read this entire section, but again, you who study the Bible on your own, we want to look at verses 8 through 16. We'll just pick a few of these verses. 2 Samuel 7. To understand Messiah and this phrase is important to our text. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, but don't miss what we've just read. I took you from following sheep. What are you walking in if you're following sheep? Doesn't take imagination. It's intentional. He didn't say, I took you from shepherding sheep. He didn't say, I took you from leading sheep. He didn't say, I took you from pastoring sheep. He said, I took you from following sheep. I took you from walking in the muck of a despicable animal as a teenage boy, and I made you a leader over, I took you from following sheep, a pretty disgusting picture, to over my people Israel. Don't miss that. He's a teenage boy when he's been anointed. You know the story of Saul? The kingdom has been torn from his hand, literally and metaphorically. Literally, when he tried to Grab hold of Samuel's robe, and it tore away. And Samuel said, just like that, the kingdom has been torn. Later on in the cave of Abdullam, when, when David will cut part of his cloth off, he'll illustrate again, the kingdom was torn from you. It haunts him his whole life. David was taken from following sheep to be over his people Israel. Uh, drop down to verse 9. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies before you. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them as they did formerly. Even from that day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And just a sidebar, um, I, I know this isn't a popular view. Not a lot of people agree with it. That's okay. I think the land has a place in Scripture and in the future that is undeniable. 
undeniable. What it actually means, I don't know all the ins and outs, but the land is a terra firma for what God is going to do. Somehow it continues to play a role in this whole process. Verse 12, when your days are complete and when you lie down with your fathers, an idiom for when you die, I will raise up your descendants. And don't miss the language. When you lie down, I'm going to raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Who's he talking about? Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be like a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, meaning David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, why is this guy used son of David as a title? He's referenced as Jesus of Nazareth, a derogatory, condescending term, and yet the blind beggar says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me a number of times. What's Mark telling us? Let's go back to the beginning of when he says, I'm going to be handed over, mocked, scourged, killed, buried. I'll be raised from the dead. Well, I want to be important. I want to be, I want to be top of the list. You know what you're asking for. The disciples are ticked off and indignant at the other ones. He says, listen, gentlemen, if you want to be first, be last. You want to lead, serve. You want to be successful, die to yourself. That's what he tells them. And on the heels of that, they're walking through, and this blind Bartimaeus, son of David, son of David, son of David. Mark is sewing together a beautiful story telling us, you still don't quite know who he is. The crowd thinks he's a Nazarene. A blind beggar knows he's the son of David. It's a title that was messianic. It only meant Messiah, which is why it's not used in the Gospels very much, except when Jesus self-references, or in this case, when Bartimaeus calls him out. Bartimaeus believed. Bartimaeus had heard rumors and stories. If you're a blind person and you hear the rumor mill, there's a guy that's given people sight. There's a guy that's healed people. There's a guy that's walked on water. He's multiplied loaves and fish. I mean, if you're a blind person, I'd, I'd like to meet that guy. I'd like to talk to that guy. And Bartimaeus knows enough theology to know this has to be Messiah if he can do those things. Scribes and Pharisees would never call him son of David. They call him Nazarene. But the blind Bartimaeus asked a question. Now, as we began this, this whole text, and I ask you the question, uh, what do you ask of Jesus? What's Bartimaeus asking? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. He had to speak up against his critics. Be quiet. Be quiet, they kept telling him. Son of David, have mercy on me. Important lesson here. What do you want from Jesus, and are you willing to ask no matter what the noise around you is? What do you want him to do for you? The last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark, obviously, will there be other miracles? This is the last healing miracle in the Gospel, beginning at verse 49. Read with me again. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage. Stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, 
I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began to follow him on the road. And Jesus stopped. Obviously, Bartimaeus doesn't see the crowd. He hears it. He doesn't see Jesus stop in his tracks. I think we miss this because we read it so quickly. I see a little Keystone Cops here. If there's an entourage of people following Jesus, going through a crowded city, and Jesus stops, there had to be some domino behind him. People bumping into each other. He stopped. Don't miss a real obvious point here, guys. Christ listens. He hears you. He doesn't literally have to stop to hear you, but that's what I'm reading in the text. It's a glimpse into his heart. It was a good question that that man was asking. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's a good question. As opposed to, can I be, number one, can I get a position and a raise and a promotion before you go, Jesus? This is a good question. Son of David, have mercy on me. I deserve nothing. Have mercy on me. Would you be merciful to me, the sinner? Three verbs stand out. I won't bore you with the grammar, but they're all the same. Call, take courage, and stand up. Call, take courage, and stand up. They're meant to jump off the page when you read it. Call, stand up, uh, take courage, and stand up. Call him here. What welcome news among the crowd. What a great thing. Call him here. Jesus stops and tells somebody in his entourage, bring him over here. Call him here. Secondly, take courage. Some of your Bibles read cheer up. Unfortunate rendering in my humble opinion. The word courage is very important in this text. The word courage and the way it's used here is defined as to be firm or resolute in the face of fear. To be firm or resolute in the face of fear. He's calling you, take courage. Be firm and resolute in the face of fear. In chapter 6 of Mark, verse 50, when Jesus is walking and it looks like a ghost on the water and the disciples are freaking out, he says the same word, take courage. Don't say cheer up. Oh, be happy, guys. It's me. Just take courage. Don't be afraid. In Mark chapter 14, we'll see in a few weeks, it's the second time Jesus will use the exact same phrase, on the sea again, battered by waves. The boat's taking on enough water to, to sink the boat. And he says, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. So take courage is a theme. And then he says, stand up. Do something about your situation. Don't just lay there on your blanket, on your pallet. Get up. Call him here. Take courage and stand up. Will you do the one thing you can do and move toward him? Um, I spend probably 10% of my time talking to people who do a chronic pain, uh, who are going through chemotherapy, maybe a husband or a wife or a child is very ill, and um, I don't mind doing that. I spend a lot of time talking to people, interacting with them, phone calls, email, face-to-face, -face, about what it is like to deal with chronic issues. And um, it's, a, it's an unusual, I don't want to call it a ministry, but for lack of a better term, it's an unusual ministry. And they come to me for obvious reasons, because I've lived with chronic pain for many years, and you try to navigate what that means, and don't make it all about me, obviously, here. But I'm just saying, that's why I get these conversations. And years ago, I remember talking to a woman who'd lost her husband, and she was left with five children, all at home still. She's a widow. 
And I remember calling her in the subsequent weeks after the funeral, just checking in on her, and she was overwhelmed. Five kids. He's gone. He's the breadwinner. She was a stay-at-home mother in that particular situation. And I remember listening to her and praying with her and for her, and I just said, almost cliche, I said, you know, I'll just give you one piece of advice because I'm not a person to give someone advice who's lost a husband and they got five kids on their own. But I'm going to give you one piece of advice. You've got to do the next thing. You've got to get out of bed. You've got to wash a load of clothes. You've got to make lunches once in a while. Don't have to clean the whole house, but clean the kitchen maybe. Maybe make your bed. Maybe get on the phone and make a medical appointment for one of your kids. Just do the next thing. Now, unbeknownst to me, and as time went forward, if I was to see that woman today, I would be surprised if she didn't say to me, because I've seen her over the years, Michael, I'm just doing the next thing. And the reason I told her that is because that's what I tell myself 700,000 times in counting. Because when you wake up in the morning and you feel like you've been hit by a gravel truck, the last thing you want to try to do is get out of bed and start living. But I've got to do the next thing. I've got to put two feet on the floor. I gotta walk to the shower. I gotta take a hot shower, which is the most help of the day. I gotta shave my ugly mug. I gotta put some clothes on. I gotta go to work. I gotta read my Bible. I gotta do this and that and other. And you know what? If I think of all of it, it's just too much. And when you're laying on the floor in intractable pain, when you're throwing your guts out because of chemotherapy and you can't eat and you have no appetite and no diet and your husband or wife can't help you, you know what you gotta do? The next thing. Because making an appointment with a doctor seems like moving a mountain. Because when you call the medical, they're, they're busy. Oh, it, it's April. He can see you in July. You ever had that phone call? I have. I can't wait till July. But you know what? You got to do the next thing. You got to do the next thing. Maybe that's not why you came to church today, but maybe that's what you need to hear. You got to do the next thing. Christ has a group call him. They tell him, take courage, and he stands up. He moves to Messiah. Let me ask you the question. What's Messiah asking you to do? We've seen what two groups are asking of Jesus. What's he asking you? How often are you or I immobilized by fear, by the mountain of problems, by health, by legal, by financial, by divorces, by children that break our hearts, by parents that drive us crazy? Just color in all the lines. You're immobilized by it. Just do the next thing. That's all any human can do. And it takes a measure of faith to do that. Well, Bartimaeus, I would argue has never moved so quickly in his life. The word throwing aside his covering is one whole subject matter. Either it was his outer cloak, which was in, in if you're a backpacker, camper, hiker, you understand there's certain non-negotiable gear. And you gotta have layers or you're gonna die of either you know frostbite or hung or, or exposure. So this was either his cloak or the begging blanket or one and the same. He's leaving, we might say he's leaving behind his livelihood. He's leaving behind the one thing, let's just say pejoratively, the one thing he depends on, and then he jumps up. Only time the word is used in the Bible. It's an interesting phrase. He rocketed out of his sitting position because he was called by this group to go see the master. And Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What stopped Jesus in his track? 
Remember, Jesus isn't, oh, let's go down to Jericho. Hey, that guy, I kind of feel compassion. Let's stop and talk to this guy. He's the always deliberate, always intentional, always on purpose Jesus Christ. And he heard that son of David in the foreordination of God. That was what God wanted him, the Father wanted him to do. Stop and deal with that man. And he stops and he asks him a question. What do you want me to do for you? All the synoptics have the exact same question. Never mind two people or he touched him or his name. They all have the exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? D. Edmund Hebert says, Jesus wanted the man to express faith. He asked him to make a specific request. Forty-four of us just came back from Israel about a week ago. We had a great trip. And um, we, one of the sites we generally go to is called the Pool of Bethsaida. Bethsaida. And it's a pool with the five porticos recorded in John chapter 5. It's an A-plus site. We know Jesus was there. No question about it. So we go to the Pool of Bethesda, and we look at John chapter 5. And there's an interesting story there about a guy that's 38 years been laying on the side waiting to get in the water. Now there's this lore. It's not, it's not a biblical theology. It's a lore that the water was stirred up by an angel. The word in Greek is paroxysmos. And uh, if you got in first, you got healed. And so that's why people waited by the pool of Bethesda, because of this lore, this legend, this story. And Jesus sees this guy, 38 years in his disability, and says, do you want to get well? And the guy's answer is a case study. Oh, when the water stirred up, nobody's here to bring me down. I can't get in first, and I, I've been waiting here. Wah, 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 wah. That's the answer in Greek. <laughs> what was the answer to the question? Yes. Yes, I want to get well. Bartimaeus got the question. This passage forces me to think of two things. What do I ask of Jesus, and what is Jesus asking of me? Can I put those on your shelf as well? What are you asking of Jesus, and what is he asking of you? We've got a lot in our prayer list. Some of us keep prayer lists. Some of us are really diligent about praying for people. I have people, I don't know why, but they pray for me all the time. I have friends that will send me a text or an email. I pray for you every day. It, sometimes it brings me to tears. Why do they remember me, for goodness sakes? I have a buddy I've known since third grade. Think about that. That's a long time. He lives in New Braunfels, Texas. And his wife is also named Cindy. And she says, Michael, every Sunday morning, George has got his Bible open at 5 or 6 in the morning. And your name, he's praying for you every Sunday morning. He'll never tell you that. But George prays for you every Some of us, let's just say, we aren't really good at praying. We only pray when we hear the diagnosis or the pathology or our marriage is in trouble or our kids are breaking our hearts or we lose a job or, or, or. Some big problem. And as I've said many times, that really is disconcerting to me to think about the trouble we have in life parallel our spiritual life. Does God allow these things in our lives so that we draw close to him? Because if we're successful and self-sufficient and don't need God, you know what? You don't need God. That's our problem in America. Well, what are you asking him? And maybe more importantly, what is he asking you?
Bartimaeus doesn't mean to miss a beat. Ramoni, I want to gain my sight, regain my sight. Regain, of course, suggesting he had it at one time. Rabboni is a personal appeal like, my, my, my rabbi, my friend, my father, my... It's very touching. And he simply says, go, your faith has made you well. Now, in your Bible, it might say healed or made well. It's the same word in Greek as the word sozo. Sozo means to get saved, to be rescued, to be made well. And we determine what it means by the way it's used. So if the word was used that Paul was saved at the, in the sea of a Aegean Sea... That means he was saved, delivered from death. But it's a double meaning word here. What Jesus is saying is your faith has saved you. You've been made well not only with your sight, but you've been made well because you put faith in me. Your faith has saved you. Mark ends immediately, he, Bartimaeus, regained his sight and following him on the road. Jesus said he could go, unlike the garrison demoniac who he said, you have to go back to your people, you can't come with me. It seems like an open invitation. Go wherever you want, do what you want to do. And Bartimaeus chooses to follow him. One, one commentator writes uh, that he followed him to Jerusalem with the gift of sight and becomes an eyewitness of the coming week. I like that. Can't prove it, but I like it. William Barclay writes, Bartimaeus was a man of gratitude. Having received his sight, his need was met. He began with need, and it went to gratitude, and then became loyalty. And that's a perfect summary of a disciple. Need, gratitude, and loyalty. Years ago, I can't remember precisely when or who said it, but I was with a group of guys, and we were you know, pontificating about the Christian life and what it means and maturing in the faith and all these concepts we toss around about growth and maturing and what it means. And we were trying to distill it down to a, a more common line. What, what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it look like? And someone said, was it me? You know, our lives should be a thank you back to God. I've had a hard time improving on that. It's reductionistic. It's a little simplistic. But it's a pretty good reminder. If he saved you from spiritual blindness, spiritual leprosy, from death row, shouldn't you and I live a life that's thank you, God? Instead of, here's the prayer list of things you never do for me, Jesus. And you know what? I'm going to quit praying those things because you've not done them. You know, the water's stirred up and I don't get down there in time. Wah, 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 wah. Is your prayer list wah, 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 wah? This passage tells me a lot of things, but it tells me, number one, clarify what I'm asking of Jesus. Clarify what I am asking of Jesus. Clarify what you're asking of him. Scrub it. Look at it carefully. And then listen carefully to what he's asking of you. That, to me, seems to be the fulcrum of faith in this passage. Clarify what you're asking. I'm not making fun of or demeaning a person with lots of prayer lists. I'm not saying that. Do not take that far. I'm simply asking clarify what you're asking. James and John asked for the wrong thing. They were with him the whole time. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus says, Son of David, will you have mercy on me? Here's the great news. He hears you. He loves you. He stops. Not literally, but that's the picture we're given here. Because someone was asking the right question. Clarify the questions you ask of him and listen clearly to what he is asking you.
Our Father in heaven, we love you because you loved us first. Help us to be men and women who ask clearly, precisely, and carefully. And perhaps more important, help us to listen to your word and your spirit in community with your people to know what you're asking of us. We need your help. Thanks that you're here. And thanks that you empower us with your spirit. We pray all this in the powerful, risen name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.